For thousands of years, the days preceding and following the winter solstice on December 21st were marked by pagan celebrations honoring the sun. Before it became Christmas as we know it, Yuletide was as much a season of spirits, elves, and witches as it was a festival of goodwill. On this week's Please Explain segment, we're taking a look at the pagan origins of our modern holiday traditions with Linda Radish, author of The Old Magic of Christmas, Yuletide Traditions for the Darkest Day of the Year. It's published by Llewellyn Books, and I'm very pleased it has brought Ms. Radish to our show today. Welcome to Please Explain. Thank you. It's very nice to be here after listening for years. Oh, well, I'm glad you've been listening so you know what you're in for. Um, And as always, during these Please Explain segments, we invite our listeners to join the conversation. You can call in at 212-433-9692, write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate, or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Linda, it's widely believed that Christmas celebrations arise out of pagan traditions, but you write that that's only half the story. Didn't many cultures around the world observe the winter solstice in some way? They did, um, mostly in the more northern regions or places where the founding population came from a northern region. Um, as you'll see, like northern Europe, Christmas is the big celebration. As you move further south, for instance, Greece, that have had a different agricultural calendar, didn't have so much darkness in the winter. It's Easter that's the big thing. Um, but you do see even in India, in Nepal, it, it was an important waypost. If you're in the signpost, if you're in the northern hemisphere, you're going to be affected by those dwindling days coming up to the winter solstice. Um, what people get wrong is there's a lot of cliches a lot of people look at a lot of Christmas and say, oh, pagan, pagan, pagan. And it's really very difficult to separate the strands of, okay, what was pagan and what was Christian. Well, we'll look at some of those in a moment. But um, although Jesus's birth has been traditionally commemorated on December 25th, isn't it true that there's no record that Christians celebrated his birth in the first two Christian centuries? Right, because that was not, the big deal was Easter. That was, you know, when the the deal was done. Um, The December 25th was assigned as his birthday because the cult of Mithras, who was an Iranian and Persian god, that was his birthday. And he was a sun god, so it fit in very nicely. Let's transition this into celebrating the birth of Christ. So it has nothing to do with the fact that uh, in December, Romans honored Saturn, the god of agriculture, during the festival called Saturnalia? That's oh, I think what I've usually that, heard. Yeah. In fact, the, the English Father Christmas is usually equated with the American Santa Claus, but the, the English Father Christmas may be more derived from the, the Saturnalia, the Roman Saturnalia, because, of course, England was very influenced by Rome. And, um, you know, the bringing in of greens, the Romans did that, not actual trees, but Bows. Uh, so as you, as you see, there's a lot of strands there. So they would have been, people would have been out doing their Saturnalia shopping in ancient Rome at this time of year. So that got sucked up into the Christmas celebrations, too. Exchanged gifts, and uh, they also adorned their homes with holly bows. Did they 
sing fa la 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 no, I think that's that's later. I'm sure they sang something, but I don't think we have a record of what what the, those early Christians and those Romans, the pagan Romans, were were singing. Follow uh, the deck the halls. I don't have a date for deck the halls. I, I know it is one of the older ones. It's one of my favorite ones because it um, it's you know Yuletide treasure and things like that. Now- um, December 21st is the shortest day and longest night of the year, and it seemed to inspire celebrations in many cultures, Vermelia in ancient Rome, Yule in various parts of Europe, Yalda in Iran, Sanghamita for uh, Theravada Buddhists. Uh, did, the, uh, did the Mayans celebrate the winter solstice? I don't know. They were further... South, mm-hmm. I believe that they had some that that just like our Halloween originally was um, scheduled by the Pleiades. I think the Mayans had some festivals that were dictated by the rising of the Pleiades. What did pre-Christian pagans celebrate during Yule tide? Well, there are some traditions like the Yule log and caroling and wassailing. Don't they come out of that? Yes, the Yule log. That's that's pretty old. Um, it's hard. To, it's very, I mean, they did not have in Europe at the time. They really didn't have a standardized religion. They didn't have a scripture. They didn't leave us a calendar of what they were doing when. And the season really began uh, at what we now call Halloween. That was the beginning of it, and it just kind of dragged on till January, early February, and that's when you had to start to think about getting your fields plowed, think about getting ready for spring uh, spring planting. Um, something we have to remember about the winter solstice is now it's December 21st, but before we switched over to the Gregorian calendar, it, w- it fell on December 13th. And if there's any Swedes out there, they'll recognize December 13th as uh, Santa Lucia, St. Lucy's Day in English. And that has a very, very sun-worship-looking tradition where the, a girl will be crowned as a Lucia, and she wears a wreath of greens on her head and actual burning candles, and she walks around distributing uh, saffron buns and cookies and often coffee nowadays. Um, so they, but, but she's a little tricky. She's actually, she sort of illustrates the trickiness of trying to pin down what the pagans were doing and what is Christian influence because she resembles the Christkind, the Christ child, who was made into a gift giver after the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation further south in, in Germany and Bohemia. So physically, with the, with the crown and the white gown, she resembles that. But if you go further back, of course, she's representing St. Lucy, whose feast day that is. And St. Lucy was an early Christian martyr from Italy. But if you go before they really adopted the the saints and the Christian calendar in Scandinavia. They had a witch that appeared, and she she took on the name of Lucy because she would appear on that feast day, 
and this was a witch who was coming down the chimney with her horde of goblins, and she wouldn't give gifts, she would take the food. So that's where the chimney tradition began? The chimney tradition is sort of all over the place. There was also way down that, I mean, that was in, in Norway and Scan, the rest of Scandinavia that, that Lucy and her goblins were coming down the chimney. Then also in Sicily, they had a Lucy character who came down sometimes on Lucy's Eve, sometimes on Christmas Eve. She came down the chimney. She would give gifts, but if, if you happen, if you saw her, she would throw ashes in your eyes because you were not supposed to look at her. In Greece, they had the Kali Kansaros came down the chimney to steal the Christmas food, so you had to leave a few offerings hanging in the chimney for him. And sometimes there was a whole horde of them so that they wouldn't take, you know, leave some candy and maybe some sausages in, in there, and, and they won't take the rest of your Christmas feast. Um, I like to think that this whole worship around the chimney, which we continue today, putting the cookies out for Santa, may have been that the place where the the spirits of the ancestors resided. I'm speaking with Linda Radish, R-A-E-D-I-S-C-H. Her book, The Old Magic of Christmas, Yuletide Traditions for the Darkest Day of the Year, published by Llewellyn Books. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. I am Leonard Lopate. Part of the problem, well, you say that the Christmas season um, began either from late October or early November until early February. Is part, of the, uh, is part of the problem the fact that the calendar is so confusing? Uh, when we look at it, September, October, November, December suggests that they were the 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th months, not the 9th through the 12th. Right. Uh, yeah, from the, the Julian calendar switching over to the Gregorian calendar, I think back in Roman times, those names, September, October, November, December, they've made sense. They no longer make sense numerically. And in addition to this is that not everybody accepted the new Gregorian calendar at once. It was over a couple hundred years. Um, some in the 1500s, England sometime in the 1700s, and I think Greece may have been the last holdout. And then on top of that, you have the, the Eastern Orthodox calendar is a little bit different from the Western Protestant and Catholic calendar. And the, the pagans would have had their own schedule of agricultural festivals, which, since the material culture didn't change when they converted to Christianity, those dates were still important, the dates of the slaughter, harvest, planting. And actually, when you look at some of these holidays from going from Halloween on through Candlemas on February 2nd, they seem to be doing the same things. Um, there's propitiation of spirits. Um, there's the idea that of fortune-telling, what you do, the way things are, however much food you have, how things are going on Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve will predict how things are going to be in the coming year. The Bible doesn't specify a date or a month. Um, one problem with December is that it would be unusual for shepherds to be abiding in the field at uh, such a cold time of year when the fields were unproductive. Uh, much more likely, some people say, either spring or 
fall. Also, winter would be uh, a difficult time for a pregnant Mary to travel a long distance from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So is that why we just automatically assume that uh, the we have picked up the winter solstice celebrations and, and applied them to the birth of, of Jesus' story? Yeah, I think it was nicely convenient because I suppose they could have done the math. Do we know when the Annunciation was, because I suppose you could do the math from the Annunciation and then count up nine months. That might be December. That would be the due date. Um, but it's more convenient if everybody's already celebrating something. The You know, the early church fathers were very good at co-opting those festivals that were already happening and, and using them to their own ends. You, and you've suggested that there are different Christmas traditions in different parts of the world. Why are many modern American Christmas traditions rooted in Germanic and Celtic beliefs? Well, I know more about the Germanic, and I can, I can state that Santa Claus is definitely a German-American. Even though he is based on St. Nicholas, who was in Turkey? Right, St. Nicholas, Bishop of Myra... I would say he can take maybe a half to a third of his genealogy from from St. Nicholas. If you compare our Santa Claus with the Dutch Sinterklaas, who did have, he, he had some time in New York, uh, in early New York, he came over with the Dutch, and a lot of people think, oh, well, that Dutch Sinterklaas must be the direct ancestor of our German Santa Claus, I mean, of our American Santa Claus, but our guy was, of course, Santa Claus, Saint Niklaus, the German German for Nicholas. Um, he appears in Germany on December sixth, which is Saint Nicholas, Bishop of Myra's Saint Day. But he also, in Germany, he did not look like a bishop. He was there were furry Nicholases and ashy Nicholases. And the Santa Claus that we know, who was illustrated by Thomas Nast, he looks like he's drawn from the furry Nicholas. In fact, he wasn't even wearing red. Originally, he was sort of in brown and and gray furs. And a listener is wondering why red and green have become the colors of Christmas. Well, we like green because there's not as much of it at Christmas time, and red and green my opinion is that they're they're opposite on the color wheel. They're complementary colors, and they look, unless you're colorblind, they look very nice together. So it's just that they look festive. You mentioned... And then, uh, there's the holly. You know, they look like red, red and green holly, yewberries. Um, it's a color that's around this time of year. Elves have become a part of the modern Santa Claus story, but didn't they have their own holiday in Scandinavia? They did. We have a very brief, sketchy mention in one of the Norse sagas, not in one of the Icelandic ones, but it's it's pre, it's taking place in in Scandinavia before the settlement of Iceland. And there's something going on called Alpha Blot, and there's this poor uh, traveling king servant, and he's trying to find a place to spend the night. At some point in October, which is really full-on winter in Scandinavia, and he keeps getting turned away at all the farmsteads where he stops because they're about 
to celebrate alpha blocks and the family want you know they're they're not taking in guests they're they haven't learned the christmas hospitality yet and that seems to have been a holiday where the elves were propitiated and the elves probably were manifestations of of the spirits of the family's ancestors. So it was a very personal thing. I think each farmstead had its own elves, and in Scandinavia, each farmstead still does have its own elf. You write that while many of the chieftains and kings of Northern Europe were able to trade in Odin for Jesus without much thought, the farmers weren't able to give up the elf mythology so easily. Uh, so they were just incorporated into the Christian cosmology? Weren't elves even incorporated into an Adam and Eve story? Uh, yes, the story the, um, is that Adam and Eve had a whole bunch of kids, and one day one of the versions is that, that God came to visit, um, but Eve was not able to get them all their baths, so only half of the kids were clean. They, these were presented to God when he came in the door to visit, and the rest of them were sent out in the backyard to hide. <laughs> and God said, well, is this all the kids you've got? And she said, yes. And, of course, being God, he knew better and said, well, the ones that you've hidden from me, they will remain hidden. And in Iceland, they're still known as the holder folk, the hidden folk. And wasn't there they, a, Go ahead. Oh, they, the elves that are now making toys up at the North Pole or in... Northern Lapland, if you prefer. Uh, well, if you well, the North that. Pole, the ice is melting. They better move if they, they are. Yeah, yeah. The <laughs> they have to go further and further north every year. Um, I don't think we can call them the direct descendants of the elves that were celebrated at Alpha Blot, uh, because the question is, where have they been all that time in between? We don't. There was in Scandinavia, they've been a constant presence. But um, in America, in the rest of Europe, they've been, they were lying low until they were made famous, you know, as Christmas elves. Wasn't, so there, it, wasn't there a time during the mid-20th century when some scholars believed that the elves were actually uh, equated with the Picts and other Celtic tribes that painted their skin blue and refused to be Christian? Yes, and it's a very nice, it's a very nice, idea one was really put forward by by Gerald Gardner who was the father of modern witchcraft he liked to put forth that idea that you know the elves were an indigenous european race and the picts the picts were were a good shoe in because they've been very romanticized i mean they painted themselves blue and people say that the pictish language like they like to say about japanese today that oh japanese is completely unique it's not related to any other language and we know that it is, it's an Asian language, it's related to Korean. Just as Pictish, it's a Celtic language. They weren't all that different from their fellow Celts, but they've, they've been romanticized. And yeah, that's one of the ideas that uh, they were painting themselves blue and green, and they were, you know, a different kind of people entirely. Very small. Very small. That could have been because they had to run up into the hills, so they were malnourished. Uh, it's a romantic idea, um, but I think the elves, the elvish connection to the dead, is a much stronger case than to any actual living people. 
Linda, we have to take a little break. We'll come back with more, and we invite our listeners to join the conversation. The number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. We're speaking to Linda Radish, author of The Old Magic of Christmas, Yuletide Traditions for the Darkest Day of the Year, published by Llewellyn Books. Stay with us for more. And we are back with Linda Radish, whose book, The Winter Solstice, Yuletide Celebrations, uh, The Old Magic of Christmas, uh, Yuletide Traditions for the Darkest Days of the Year, is published by Llewellyn Books. And we're inviting your calls at 212-433-9692. Some of the things here are totally new to me, like St. Martin's Day, which marked the beginning of the Christmas season in Germany. How did that tradition originate? That was another bishop. Actually, there's there's two St. Martins, and this is one, the feast day, the story is that he was a, you know, a Roman soldier, and he met a beggar on the road, and he gave the beggar half his cloak, and the beggar turned out to be Jesus himself. Of course, if St. Martin had known that, he probably would have given him the whole cloak. And uh, so his day, November 11th, used to look a lot like St. Nicholas Day, September, uh, December 6th looks now. Uh, he rode on a horse, and you could the the Dutch Sinterklaas, St. Nicholas, he also comes in on a horse in the early, late November, early December. So they could be echoes of the Norse god Odin, who was usually on horseback. He had an eight-legged horse named Sleipnir, which was either white or gray, and these St. Nicholas and St. Martin, they ride a white horse. And in the old days, St. Martin, if he came by, he would turn any water left out in the cup to wine. He might leave some cookies. And there was also, I mentioned the furry Nicholases that were in Germany in at St. Nicholas Day. That's the ancestors of our our German-American Santa Claus, and St. Martin also had, there were, there were furry Martins <laughs> also around. And, and some of these stories are really weird, but how did Nicholas, uh, who was a bishop of Myra in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, how did he wind up in Germany and northern Europe? Well, I don't think he ever personally set foot there. No, I mean the story. I mean, oh, the story. how did well, they the wind up adopting him rather than uh, St. Martin or somebody else? Well, his his feast day was at the right time of the year on December 6th, and in his stories he, he's a saint, so of course he does a lot of nice things for people, and he especially uh, was nice to children. There were some poor boys who were cut up into pieces and put in a pickle barrel, and the saint came by and put them back together and brought them home to their parents. There was another, there were some poor girls who couldn't afford a dowry, so he dropped some gold coins down their chimney. So he was a nice shoo-in as a gift giver, but he really didn't come come forward as a gift giver until after the Reformation. Because the original legend can be quite creepy. St. Nicholas had a malicious sidekick named Black Peter who stuffed naughty children into his sack and carried them off to Spain. Spain, uh, yes. And, and, why, and why Spain? <laughs> Spain, because this is now Dutch... Uh, the Netherlands has become 
Protestants, and Spain is Catholic, and Spain and the Netherlands are, are at war with each other. So now we'd say, yes, please do bring me to Spain, you know, free airfare. Uh, but in those days, that was considered, you know, the root of all evil to go to Spain. And Black Peter is, he's still out there. He's, he's active. You may have heard about, there's been a lot of controversy about him. Uh, it's been building, but it really kind of exploded this year um, because he is often, he, he's often played by a girl because he has to be smaller than the saint that he's accompanied by. Um, and he's often played in, in blackface. He's played by a white person in blackface. And now that the Netherlands has a much more, you know, ethnically diverse population, some people are finding that this is no longer appropriate because um, he dresses like a Moorish page from the 16th century. And Black Peter isn't the only malicious creature used to scare children around Christmas time. What is the the cert or Krampus? There's, yeah, Ch- Krampus gets uh, Krampus has gotten a lot of publicity lately. Um, Chert is the Czech version. Um, looks pretty much identical to Krampus, and he's a horrible horned demon with a long tongue who accompanies Saint Nicholas. And he's he instead of but instead of carrying Black Peter is only going to take you off to Spain, but. Krampus or Chert, they will take the bad kids all the way to hell. So did, he's even, there's a lot more invested there. Didn't and say, they come into your house. Did, oh, he's coming to your house. Well, didn't St. Nicholas also threaten to beat children with birch twigs that he carried in his sleigh? And then there's the yeah. other story, the whole story about the reindeer, which is rather gruesome. I don't know how, much, how explicit we want to get there. But how did reindeers, reindeer come into this story? Well, I think for us, I mean, if you're if you're a Sami, if you're living in northern Lapland, northern Finland and Norway, uh, reindeer are a part of your life, and that's the time, you know, when the slaughter would be. You'd call the weakest weakest animals from the herd, and and the the Sami or Laplanders would make an offering of parts of the reindeer to what they called the Yuletide people who are probably related to the Norse god Odin's horde of, of horsemen and his whole retinue that, that goes stampeding through the countryside at this time of year, and which can be either a blessing if it passes or it can be dangerous if it passes. Um, but I think it was really Clement Clark Moore, who wrote A Night Before Christmas, who injected the reindeer into our celebration. They weren't there all along. So it's that recent. Yes. I mean, he was a well-read guy. He was working on a dictionary. I think that was his, his you know, he, he knew about stuff, and he thought, well, how's, how is this furry gift giver going to get around? Let's, let's give him eight tiny reindeer. Well, how did that story about the reindeer being, um, how do I say it, um, <laughs> uh, being uh, castrated, how did that uh, come well, about? Well, that's not a story. I mean, we don't have, but but they do castrate reindeer, and if you were going Santa to Claus's have, reindeer are castrated, according yeah, well, to the tradition. Well, they should be. Yes, I mean that's really the only rain. If you want to have reindeer pulling a sleigh all around the world on Christmas Eve, they've got to be strong. They've got to be fast, and really, the only ones who are going to be able to do the job at that time are the castrated reindeer. 
No wonder Rudolph had a red nose. He was drinking to uh, <laughs> to keep away some of the pain. Yes, because the the females um, they're probably pregnant. They should be pregnant at this time, and the males have been rutting. the The fertile males, the bulls, they've been rutting, and they're completely exhausted. Their antlers are falling off. They don't look good at this time of year. But the the castrated ones, they're they're in fine fettle, and they they look very nice leading a sleigh. I don't know. I don't think Clem and Clark Moore necessarily knew that. I I learned that when I did you know some research into into the Sami and and reindeer and their their schedule, the reindeer schedule. Um, but yeah, people don't think of that. And the the females also, the female reindeer also have antlers. Should we take some calls? Roberta from Forest Hills, you're on the air. Yes, hello, Leonard. I'm so happy to talk to you. I went to Austria many, many years ago, and I was urged by my friend, who had a friend there, to go to her friend's house because the tradition in Austria at Christmas is a member of the family goes down the chimney with a pig, and the squealing pig gets loose, and whoever... Uh, catches it in the house at the time, has good luck for the rest of the year. Have you oh. heard that story? Not coming. I haven't heard coming down the chimney with the pig, which sounds really difficult, but very <laughs> romantic. Well, because this was her very good friend who she went to school with, and he was the mayor of the town, and he was traditional. So he did. she said, you must get there to see this. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing to see. But I never got there because my, my pension lady, where I was staying, refused to give me my, my uh, passport because she thought I was going to run out on the bill. And so we missed this wonderful spectacle, and I'm so sad. Now, was that Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve? I believe it was Christmas Eve because that's when I was there. I went skiing, and she said, oh, you must go to my friend's house because you're going to see something you've never seen, and it's wonderful. I love that. Now, I know the pigs, pigs are lucky in Austria and Germany. They will, on New Year's Eve in Austria, they'll carry a, a pig around, and if you can touch a pig, a piglet, that's good luck. Thank you for and, calling us, Roberta. Anastasia from Manhattan. Hi, you're on the air. Uh, hello. Um, I'm Greek, and I was taught um, that in, in the first, I don't know, centuries of Christianity, there was a bishop, or whatever they called them, uh, whose name was Basilios, and he was extremely kind to the poor. He would, uh, every Christmas around, you know, the holidays, he would give gifts. Uh, in other words, he would help out a lot of the poor people. And he became quite famous about it. And uh, uh, in Greece, to this day, we do not say Saint Nick uh, or, uh, yeah, we have Agios Vasilios, Saint Vasilios. And, uh, and he is our um, Santa Claus. And also, we do not, he did, we get the gifts the first of the year rather than Christmas. And it is, uh, it represents the Magi, the, the three kings that came to uh, find um, the infant Jesus and gave him gifts. So, uh, and I always thought the I, the legend of uh, Santa Claus came from Vasilios, the Adiochian bishop. So well, that's what I was thought. It is interesting that so many of the traditions change with 
the Protestant Reformation and obviously the schism between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, but some of the, the, the themes are the same. Yes, and there are other places where the gifts come on January 6th Epiphany. That's when the Magi arrived to present their gifts to the baby Jesus. We have very little time left, but I was wondering about mistletoe, which has become a decoration associated with Christmas. Uh, wasn't it sacred to the Druids? It was, but they were more, they would cut it um, at, and people will have trouble with the pronunciation, I don't know if it's right, at Sawan, which is now Halloween. That was the date when the Druids originally cut it, not at Christmas. But because it's green at Christmas, it's, it's a good way to decorate. But then there's the whole matter of kissing under the mistletoe. But the early church forbade bringing greenery and plants into churches, so uh, I guess there was no kissing done there. Well, but, yeah, they didn't, I mean, you didn't kiss in church. You would kiss under the kissing ball at home if you were in England. But they, they now and then they tried to forbid Christmas. They tried to forbid the greens. People kept bringing in the greens anywhere because it, it looks good. It's there. It's might be a symbol of fertility, uh, and the mistletoe was really never any, I don't think the mistletoe was considered any more pagan than the other greens that you would bring, in the holly and the box and the ivy. And the tree later. And the tree, yes. The tree dates back only to the 1600s, the actual standing up Christmas tree, may, maybe the mid-1500s. Linda, we have to leave it there, unfortunately. Linda Radish, her book, the Old Magic of Christmas, Yuletide Traditions for the Darkest Day of the Year, published by Llewellyn Books. It's been a great pleasure having you on today's Please Explain.